Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. I am your host, Christina McAteer, and have the pleasure of welcoming Catherine Vestness. How are you today, Catherine? Another great day, and I'm so happy to help our doctors get better at negotiating their contracts. Excellent. Well, as you know, I've been requesting this topic for a long time. I'm very excited about it. And I think this time of year is so pertinent as we have all of our graduating residents and fellows out there on the interview trail getting contract and job offers, and they need to know these basics. So what have you got for us, Catherine? Well, first of all, I want to say this is not just for new attendings. This could also apply to any attending physicians that are looking at shifting employers. So the exact same rules apply. Very good point. You know, I remember hearing from my mentors and residency that it was unlikely I would stay in the same job for my whole career. And I thought, that's ridiculous. I'm going to get a job and I'm going to love it. And that's where I will retire. But you do end up having some job changes along the way. So help us empower ourselves to make good decisions when going through these changes. Well, first of all, the thing I want to let you know is that I have never, ever seen a contract that was not negotiable or it couldn't be improved in some way. Now, I know that the employers always say, oh, no, this is a non-negotiable contract, kind of take it or leave it. Well, I will tell you that um, what made it very clear to me that every contract was negotiable was I had a radiologist going to UCLA. And you can imagine how many physicians, I don't know, maybe thousands, I have no idea how many they hire. And sure enough, we negotiated that contract and we got him a little more money. So yes, every contract is indeed negotiable, no matter what they tell you. Excellent. And when you say negotiable, it makes me think that you have to really know what you want out of a contract. Well, I think it's helpful, but keep in mind, sometimes we're just trying to move the ball a little further down the field. We're trying to get a little bit more, could be a little bit more time off, a little bit more for CME, a little more salary. So sometimes we're not talking about huge differences. And once again, I really believe that they're all negotiable. And the doctors that sign without asking for a little bit more, I really believe are leaving money on the table. Nowadays, most employers, I don't care if it's a big hospital or even smaller clinics, are used to having to negotiate. So my personal belief is they're holding a little bit back. And if you don't ask for it, Christy, you're not going to get it. Very good point. And I see you have listed here, first point, salary. I know as a young graduate, I really thought that the salary was everything about the contract, just with the stress of the student loans that I was carrying, knowing living expenses, things like that. What are your thoughts on salary? Well, granted, salary is important. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure it's always the most important issue. I had a doc recently, infectious disease, and he took a job, and I'm going to call it East Overshoe, Montana, right? It was a place that nobody wanted to go to. And sure enough, he made about $100,000 more a year in East Overshoe, Montana than he would have made in any other place in the country. He only lasted about nine months because he really couldn't stand working there. So salary is important, but sometimes it's not the only thing. I think you have to look at, are these people you enjoy working with? Do you like how they practice medicine? Those are a lot of the other soft issues that I think you need to take into consideration. Excellent. So when we start our negotiations, what would you recommend as the first step? You have to do your homework. I cannot tell you the doctors I've seen that just, they're so tired. They're so exhausted. They've been through residency. They are sometimes even fellowship and they're just tired of this. Any decent contract, they just sign on the dotted line. And I'm like, no, no, take a minute, take a minute. So first step is you need to be doing your homework. 
I'm amazed. I've never had a doctor actually do this, but you can go online nowadays and look at salary.com. You can look at Glassdoor and you can put in things like uh, radiologist LA and you can get a range of what radiologists in LA are making nowadays. And so very often this is extremely helpful when it comes to negotiating your contract. I had a, I think it was internal med doctor moving to Atlanta and I did this research for him and I said, hello, they're paying you about 30% less than what the going rate is for doctors in Atlanta. And he went back to his employer and sure enough got his entire income up for six years. And I figured it probably made him about $180,000 that he would have just left on the table if he hadn't done that simple thing. Well, one more example that knowledge is power. And I love that the internet can facilitate that information because otherwise, how would you know? It seems that perhaps an employer is trying to take advantage of your naivete there. I think that happens more often than we'd like to believe, to be frank. So one of the big things I tell doctors, if you want to work on the coast, whether it's West Coast um, or East Coast, understand that you are not going to make as much money as those of us who live in the Rust Belt. California doctors pay a huge price for living in paradise. Uh, Very frequently, they have salaries that are in the bottom 10% for the nation, which is horrific for those California docs because they pay more in taxes there than any place else. And they've got lower salaries. So that combination means those poor California doctors have to work longer. Well, it's a good thing they're in paradise because that's going to help them a lot get through extra years before they can retire. That's exactly what I was thinking, that they're working well into their 60s and 70s. Oh, right. Or longer, depending on what the situation is, because they can't save as much. That does not sound like the most desirable thing. However, I do appreciate that location is very, very important. So I suspect that you have to know where you want to be before you can even start your job search and therefore contract negotiations. Exactly. And that's a a huge thing. You know, do you want to be around family? Do you want to try a new location? These are all fit into the equations, of course. Now, and I'm going to go on to another provision. I'm seeing this more and more often is sometimes there's a provision that allows the employer to actually reduce the salary in the future. Oh, interesting. You would think that salaries would maybe increase with the so-called COLA or cost of living increase each year. Well, you would hope that would be the case. But I think that more and more we're seeing this as an industry that they're starting to treat it like a business, which of course it is. And if your new employer doesn't have the revenue they once had, if they didn't have the collections they once have, occasionally you'll see in contracts the right to actually reduce your salary. So just be aware. I don't know that there's much you can do about this provision because let's face it, if your employer doesn't have the money to pay you, they don't have the money. But just something to be aware of so you're not blindsided. And I suppose when I hear you tell this tale, it makes me think more about surgeons who are dependent on referrals and building up their client base. That's obviously very hard to do when you're the new guy in town, but eventually I suspect that you want to have the benefit of all these referrals and being a known entity in the community. It sounds like perhaps if you're not getting those referrals, then the hospital wants a way to not have to support your salary through that process. Really, really good point. And you brought up something that I hadn't planned on talking about, which I think is a very important piece here. If you're in a specialty that's dependent upon referrals, like you said, surgery could be one, dermatology, hemoc, it could be a lot of different specialties that are dependent upon referrals. A key question I'd be asking them is, what is your marketing plan for me? 
you know, how are you intending to get me patients there? And some of the bigger hospitals and clinics have very sophisticated marketing programs, and that should be very good to, to know. Others have got zip, and they may be depending upon this physician that has got no marketing or sales background to be doing this for themselves. So that's a very important consideration to think about up front. And the other thing it makes me think about is the so-called networks. As we move forward and hospitals try to garner a bigger segment of the population in the so-called in-network and out-of-network you really have to think of what is your possible referral base to even draw from. Exactly. How big is it and what are they doing to maintain it? Now, on another point on this, though, I have this lovely, lovely neurologist who specializes in MS. And she was going to a, new, a hospital in a New England town to further her career there and the process of getting selected for that position, a great salary, a great contract, et cetera. She offered to spend the year before she actually came on board doing marketing for this position. And she did lectures at certain groups. She wrote articles. She went out and, you know, shook hands. She did everything she could. So by the time that she was actually in place, she had a steady stream of referrals coming her way. Now, I was wowed by this because most physicians don't think about that. But I thought this was great. It solidified her career there and really wowed them and made sure they made her a great offer. I suspect if a job is that important to you, then maybe it's worth it. But then it makes me question how many doctors are savvy enough to execute a whole marketing strategy to build up their clientele base. Right. Exactly. Because it's not something they're probably teaching you in medical school nowadays. But it is interesting because I've seen more and more the hospitals asking their physicians to make connections to the community, whether it be lectures in a so-called community med school forum, or whether it be writing articles in a paper or writing public health segments for their local newscast. It seems that more and more hospitals want connections to the community and the physicians have to be the face for that connection. You're absolutely right. And I see that more and more often in contracts. So if it's in a contract where they're expecting you to do something, usually it's just a sentence or two, make sure that you ask them what are the expectations. Because it can be quite time consuming to do this. Some doctors don't like speaking in public. You know, you just want to make sure you understand what their expectations are. Could this be a negotiating point for your salary as well? Perhaps if you offered that you would write a weekly segment for the town newspaper, perhaps that would make you more desirable as an applicant versus another doctor who wasn't willing to do that work. Oh, absolutely. I think it makes you more desirable as an applicant, for sure. Perfect. Moving on, I say one of the other big questions that you want to look at is how is your base salary computed? So very often it's, you know, you're, we're going to give you X dollars per year. That's fine. Sometimes they'll say we'll give you X for the first two years. But then you want to know what is it going to be based on after that? Is it based on receivables? Is it based on, based on RVUs? Is it based on something else? This is huge because I find a lot of times doctors go into the new job. They may have a fixed salary for a year or two, but they really have no idea what they're going to get paid after that guaranteed period is up. Yes, I love that thought. And it makes me think of one of my very first jobs out of residency where I was working in a blue collar town that had many factories. However, with the economic downturns, the factories were closing. So our percentage of insured patients was falling lower and lower. And of course, if you calculate how 
a physician is paid, it's based on insurance, it's based on acuity, and then, of course, it's based on how many patients you can see to calculate your RVUs. And so when I was looking at that situation, I thought, well, I have no control over how many people come in the door. I have no control over what kind of insurance they have. I have no control over how sick they are. The only part of the equation that I can impact is how many patients I can see per hour. And when I realized that, it was time for me to move to another job because I felt that there was no win for that physician in this scenario. Oh, brilliant. I love your thought process. In fact, you've really hit upon something that I didn't have as part of our discussion today, but I think you're right about insurance. You know, those physicians that are not dependent upon insurance, which are pretty much limited probably to, I'm guessing, plastic surgery, few functional medicine doctors that get paid on the spot. They don't have to bill any, uh, any insurance companies. It's a huge part of this equation. And so if you're looking for a place that has a high percentage of patients that have good insurance covery or you're a specialty that doesn't need that because you're, you're getting paid on the spot, I think that's a big plus and something to consider going forward. Absolutely. Many aspects to your contract and making your decision for your future workplace. So one of the questions you should be asking is, well, out of the last two or three doctors who are in my position, what were they making in year two? What were they making in year three, year five? And so just so you can get a range of what to be expecting down the road. And that's fair information to ask your future employer? I think it is. Now, if you're in a really small clinic, you're going to know that it's Susie, you know, next door and what she's making. They may not want to tell you. So they're very likely to give you a range. Perfect. The other thought that comes to mind when you talk about salary or possibly a bonus structure is that, gosh forbid, you ever got into a dispute about employment termination or something of that matter, there's very different views in the legal system of salary versus bonuses in terms of what rights an employee has to recapture those lost monies if if the employer-employee relationship is terminated. Do you have any thoughts on that, Catherine? Right. Well, I would say you're absolutely right. It's usually about the guaranteed part of the salary that they'd be more entitled to in litigation and not so much bonuses. Actually, this is also true for disability insurance. We can get disability insurance for the guaranteed salary, not for bonuses, which are going to be discretionary. Um, you've hit upon another thing, though, that I hadn't thought of that we should can talk about today is how do you resolve disputes? And contracts will put in there a very lengthy dispute resolution process. Kaiser's uh, contracts, I swear to you, this portion could be 15 or 20 pages long on how the doctor could uh, resolve a dispute with Kaiser as an employer. Um, Generally, what I like to see is a contract that requires that the doctor and the employer go through mediation first before you go through arbitration or lawsuits. Arbitration lawsuits can be very expensive, very emotionally draining, very time consuming. Uh, So I much prefer a mediation process. Now keep in mind, we're not talking about a patient suing, suing you. We're talking about some dispute that the doctor actually has with the employer. And I hate to think of those things happening for the physician because I can only imagine how stressful that is. And certainly when I think about the resources that an employer must offer, such as someone like Kaiser versus the individual physician, it seems a woefully unfair fight. It can be very unfair, which is part of the reason I like mediation. So in a mediation situation, um, 
the doctor and the um, employer, big or small, would get together with an independent mediator and they, the independent mediator would help them negotiate some sort of solution that works for both parties. And it's a much less emotionally draining process. It's much less expensive. Most of these conflicts get resolved in a day. I think something like 85% of them get resolved in a day as opposed to lawsuits and arbitration that can literally go on for years. So like I said, I rarely see that in contracts, uh, but I did have a doctor. Um, I insisted a doctor put one in her contract. And sure enough, a few years later, she's leaving her employer under not very good terms. And she was really helpful to have that because it meant that they, she wasn't going to get sued because they had to do mediation first. Excellent. Well, again, I hate to think of that even happening, but a very wise woman once said to me that you go into a relationship planning for the breakup. <laughs> I wonder who said that. <laughs> you always have to figure out how you're going to exit. All right. So another topic might be benefits. Yes. Benefits are so important. Not only is that salary, but it's all the little things that make the time with your employer much more enjoyable. What's important to know about benefits, Catherine? Well, I would say the big thing here are going to be pension plans, and these can vary wildly from employer to employer. Um, I can't honestly say I've ever had a doctor make a decision based strictly on the benefits, but it's a very important thing to know. So let me give you an example. So we're going to be talking about 401ks and 403bs. I'm going to use the term interchangeably because they're both defined contribution plans that we've talked about before. These are the most common employer-sponsored pension plans. Uh, the big issue here is to ask about the match. I'm putting that in air quotes. The reason I'm saying air quotes around match is in any other profession I've ever seen, the employee is required to put in X for the employer to match with Y. That's how it goes. That's And that's how they encourage employees to put more money into these plans. Right. Much to my shock when I first started working with doctors, Many, many doctors weren't required to put in any money in order to get the employer match, which, of course, from just the definition of the word match makes no sense at all. But what's actually happening is those doctors got such great pension plans that even if they were putting in zero, their employers might be putting in 8, 10, or even 12% a year. And I mean by that 12% of their salary per year. Wow. So that sounds like a huge win for the physician. Great win for the physician. Also, one of those benefits that's kind of going the way of the dinosaur because a lot of these employers can't afford to be making such lucrative contributions to their doctor's plan. Yes, I can only imagine how quickly those dollars add up. Exactly. So on the low end, you might get a match that's just 2% per year and it has a five-year vesting schedule, which means you have to be employed with this employer for five years to even keep any of the employer's match. So a lot of times employees are thinking, well, I have to put in at least 4% in order to get this 2% match, but I'm planning to leave in two years because my wife's going to be finished with her training and then we're going here. And I'm like, why bother? You can't keep that match part anyway. So you may have better uses for the money. So you could keep the amount that you personally invested, but the match you would have to leave behind if you did not stay through the vestment period. Is that correct? Exactly. It's part of their inducement to get doctors to stay or any employee, but doctors in this case. Excellent. 
Now, as I said, I've seen a couple of cases, they were actually getting 10 or 12% a year. Now this, honestly, this is huge because let's say you're starting out, you're making 200,000 a year. If you've got an employer that's only giving you a 2% match, well, hello, that's $4,000 compared with 24,000 if you're getting this 12% match. So the difference over 30 years is huge. Um, The first doctor will have about 120,000 in employer contributions, not to mention all the earnings on that. The second doctor will have about 720,000 from the employer plus the earnings on that money. So they're clearly going to be ahead in the retirement race. And again, keep in mind, still have to pay taxes on that money, although the lump sum is certainly appreciably larger. Exactly. Even after taxes, they're still way ahead. Excellent. I always like it when the physician comes out ahead. (laughs) Me too. Okay. So another benefit to consider is vacation time. Now this, once again, this is going down in the last few years. Um, so I've actually seen a number of doctors only get two weeks vacation. This is crazy. I don't know how you could possibly stand only getting two weeks a year. Uh, to me, four would have to be the exact minimum. This can be something that can be negotiated, though. Now, I will say that you want to be a radiologist, uh, Christy, because the first radiologist contract I review called for 12 weeks vacation. I looked at it and go, this has got to be a typo. Who gets 12 weeks vacation? So certain specialties get more vacation time than others, but it's definitely a negotiable item. And would you say four weeks is more the average or what, what's a, what should a new applicant be looking for? I think once again, it's going to depend upon the specialty. It's like the lower earning specialties get fewer weeks. The higher earning specialties get more. How is that fair? I, I, I didn't say this was a fair arrangement. Medicine is such a crazy system. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I would say you want at least four. I'm just thinking what you do is very draining. You're going to need at least four weeks. That's a bit misleading because some of um, these employers have a lot of vacation time. And so that obviously would make it a little more palatable. Excellent. Well, Vacation is good for the mind, the body, and the soul, so I suspect the advice would be get as much vacation time as you can, and certainly if you have vacation time, make sure that you take it. I often see a lot of physicians that are eligible for vacation time, but they never take it, which is in some ways maddening to me knowing how stressful the practice of medicine is here in 2018. I totally agree with you there. All right, the next issue is CME. Now, very typically, um, doctors get one week off per year. A budget of 3500 to 5000 is kind of in the range, although I've seen them as low as like $1,200. I'm like, hello, what can you do with $1,200? You have to understand that you've got to do your CME. So if it costs you more than this to fly to Florida to take some class that you need to take, you're going to be responsible for the difference. That's an area that is pretty easy to negotiate, I think. So try to get around 5000 if you can. I think that makes perfect sense. Even if you just wanted to go to one conference per year, by the time you add in flight, hotel, and the conference fee itself, let alone food and anything else you might need, it adds up rather quickly. And you don't want to have to pay for that out of your own pocket. And by the way, those expenses out of your own pocket are no longer tax deductible if you're an employee. So for sure, you want to make sure this is higher. 
And that change was part of the 2018 tax rules, as I reflect back to an earlier podcast. Is that correct? Exactly. Which also goes to 2018 changes on relocation expenses. So very often moving expenses are not in a contract. Once again, if you have to move, you want to make sure that they're they're considered. Now, I usually see these run eight to $15,000. It's kind of the rough range of what um, moving expenses are. Now, what happened under the new tax law is these moving expenses are no longer tax deductible. So up to 2018, your employer would give you, let's say, $10,000 for relocation expenses. You would expense $10,000 on your tax bill. So it was basically a wash. It was $10,000 you didn't have to pay for. Under the new tax bill, though, you do have to pay taxes on this money. It's considered additional income. Oh, very interesting. So make sure that that's reported. But how would you get that information from your employer? Would it be part of your W-2 at the end of the year? Would it be additional income? No, it's going to show up on your W-2, so it's reported to the government. But I will tell you one of the things that savvy doctors are going to be doing is they're going to be saying, well, you know, this is no longer tax deductible to me. I like the fact that it's $15,000. The going strategy would be to go to the employer and ask them to gross it up to cover the taxes. So let's just say to keep the math simple, they were giving you fifteen thousand for moving expenses. The taxes are going to be five thousand. They would give you twenty thousand dollars to cover moving expenses and taxes on the moving expenses. Excellent. So again, really need to have some knowledge there to be able to negotiate successfully. Exactly. All right, Catherine, I I see you've got more for us on covenants not to compete. I have to admit, I have no idea what that means. Please enlighten me. Honestly, this could be the biggest bugaboo of all. So in a covenant not to compete, the doctor signs an agreement that once they leave the employer, and sometimes it's for any reason, even if the employer fires them, that they won't work within a certain time period in a certain geographical distance from their employer. So in other words, um, your emergency med, for whatever reason, you leave your current employer, the contract might state for the next two years, you cannot practice emergency med anywhere 25 miles within a location of your existing hospital. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think that probably has more implication for more urban areas Because in those situations, you would have multiple hospitals within a geographic area that would potentially be competing. It strikes me as not applicable to more rural areas, because if there's a one-stop shop and you've severed relationships with that employer, you probably have to leave town, no? Well, it's definitely a problem in rural areas, but it can be a problem in urban areas too. Because I saw a Rhode Island contract a few years ago. It prohibited the physician from working within 25 miles of any of their clinic locations. Well, as we both know, Rhode Island's a very small state geographically. This place had a lot of clinics. And if you did 25 miles on every clinic, it pretty much eliminated the entire state. So it, it makes sense to me in certain specialties. If you're an orthopedic surgeon and everybody wants to go to you to have your knee replaced and you leave, you're obviously going to take, probably want to take all those patients with you. Your former employer is not going to be happy with with that. On the other hand, emergency med, as much as I adore you, Christy, um, you're this, actually, this might work with you. I might call and go, I need to go to emergency med. Where are you working tonight? (laughs) But most people 
don't pick the hospital for emergency because they know their favorite doctor is there. This though can be extremely painful because as I mentioned, a lot of doctors are not happy in their first jobs. And so I pay attention to this particular covenant because they can tee it up in a lot of different ways. So sometimes you can't take the patient's with you, you're prohibited from contacting them, um, advertising to them, marketing to them. Sometimes you're prohibited from hiring an employee of your old employer. So in this situation, Christy, you and a couple of other docs decide you want to open up an urgent care center. And the you know three of you open up an urgent care center within how many miles of this hospital. If you had that in your contract, you'd be prohibited from doing that because you're, you're not maybe taking any patients from your old employer, but you're taking an employee of the old employer with you. And do you find that those provisions are pertinent for a certain time period or for they ever and ever more? How long do those sort of covenants last? Well, very typically I see two years, once in a great while, one year. I did have some anesthesiologists in Minnesota. I strongly recommended they not sign this. They signed an agreement that prohibited them from changing employers for seven years years. I feel like you might as well be an indentured servant. It was that ugly. So the question is, are they enforceable? You know, if you went to court, who would win? Well, in California, Massachusetts, actually now in Rhode Island, these provisions are generally considered unenforceable against physicians. But once again, it can vary from state to state. So if you've got this kind of provision in a contract that looking at, I would strongly recommend you get a good attorney to take a look at it and tell you whether they think it's viable, whether it makes sense to sign it or whether you need to negotiate it out of the contract. Excellent. And I think to me, it just highlights always having your five and 10 year plan in mind, because you may think that this is the most perfect job, but you want to keep your options open because things may change. Right. This gets back to you need an exit strategy. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We very much appreciate you joining us. And hopefully this offered you some benefit. We wish you a wonderful, productive day and look forward to spending some time with you next month. Take care.